Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you don't have to give us a ride. You can't fill us snow. You can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. And Rob's mouth is dead. Sad. Sad and tragic. Very sad. It's just really, it's just out of batteries. It's wireless. Oh. It's not that tragic. Well, then it'll come back to life. <laughs> yeah, we'll revive it. Luke. Yo. What you drinking today? Just tea. I had enough to drink last night, so what I'm taking it in easy. in the world, man? How? <laughs> I'm taking it. He, he's a... Uh, Debo is sitting beside me right now. He's going to... The silent partner. Yeah, he's going to take care of the drinking side of things. All right. Yeah, he's got. He's drinking enough for both of you tonight. Exactly. I don't know. That's a lot, though. Oh that's that you'll you'll <laughs> die if you drink enough for Luke to yourself and for Luke. I'll be worried about this poor guy over here. So Luke, I understand that you won a very prestigious award. I did, man. Uh actually everyone's going to make fun of me, but it's the first trophy. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it's the first trophy that I've ever won, actually. Like, I got, like, a participation trophy in softball when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I, I had the highest hot chicken sales in our restaurant. Yeah, I'm not, man. I'm not gonna say what restaurant it is, but how, how did they determine the uh, highest hot chicken sales? Just, uh, I mean, they they have all of that, you know, detailed records of everything that takes place, all the transactions and everything, and um, I didn't know you did cash register though. I, I don't, but they're just. It was You're definitely over there frying that chicken, though. I yeah, know that. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's me. It's me cooking it, you know. But they just determined that because how many had been rang up, you know, like which restaurant sold the most, and then all the all the fry boys got congratulated or whatever. But I was working the most hours, so therefore, you know, the tr- the trophy, like I really earned the trophy oh. because I I'm almost forty hours a week, and the other fry guys have like. You know, the other fry guys. Yeah, 25 hours or something. <laughs> that always makes me think of those like dancing pom-poms that were the, the, the Hamburglar's fry guys. <laughs> Little jumping things. Yeah, I've, always, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment to get this trophy. Man, I'm, I'm tearing up, man. I'm getting emotional. <sighs> man. Man, did they when you when you got it? Did they like throw a bunch of Gatorade on you? No, they. You say, where are you gonna go? I'm going to Disney World. <laughs> I I got a Subway card for fifteen dollars. Oh man! <laughs> and I hate Subway too. Oh. I just gave it to to uh, Booty. Here you, here you go. <laughs> Booty is his girlfriend. Yes, ladies. He calls his girlfriend Booty. Well, I I gotta. Use he has it. a very special song about her too. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that, man. That's, uh, that's still in the works. <laughs> well, Rob, it said, despite your mouse dying, how have you been? Good, man. I had the weirdest experience on the ride home today. Really? Yeah. Well, th- throughout the day, I kept getting a, a phone call from this Nashville number, and I was like, I was working, so you know, I, I didn't know who it was. It was I figured they'd leave a voicemail if it was important. But they didn't, but also at the same time, I was like, well... I have kind of been waiting for a couple of calls, so I, I had a break and I called the number back and it, you know, went to voicemail. So like, okay, great, whatever. But then I got off work and I was driving home and I got a, a random text from this number that says, "Hey, this is Mark. Sorry, I've been in the shop all day." I was like, "Okay, um, <laughs> so what's up?" And he was like, "What do you mean?" I was like, "What's going on?" Why? He's like, "Well, I, I missed three phone calls from you today. I just wanted to see what you wanted." I was like, "Wait a minute." So I looked at the number on the text and then I pulled up my my phone history, and it was the same number that had called me three times. I was like, no, I missed three phone calls from you today. And he was like, no, 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 I, I missed three phone calls from you today, and I have a voicemail from you. I was like, what the hell? So I was just going <laughs> to ignore it. And, All right. <laughs> and then he, he texted me back this, this picture of his missed calls and stuff, and there's like three missed calls from uh, someone named Rosie. And I was like, okay, I, I don't see my phone number anywhere on there, dude. And he, and he was like, you don't see Rosie on there anywhere, really? I was like, I'm not Rosie. That's that's Rob. That's Rob on Monday nights. <laughs> Rob on weekends. So, so then the guy calls me again. I answered, and he was like, he's like, hey man, ser- seriously, where's Rosie? I was like, um, this is Rob. This is my phone. This has been my phone number for like eight years. I don't know who Rosie is. <laughs> Rosie's my bitch now. Your phone shows that you missed three phone calls from a Rosie. Like, I, I don't understand how you could get my number with the name Rosie in your phone, and then. I don't know. It's just bizarre. Oh. I still don't understand how it happened. Like, <laughs> oh, could it be that <clears throat> Rosie gave a fake phone number and it just so no, cause, happened cause to it be showed yours? The three missed phone calls on his phone from somebody named Rosie. Oh, but when he clicks that, it calls me. You think it's possible that um, another phone carrier like used your number 
and like du- like a duplicated number? Is that possible? Something weird like that's happening. That's possible. But I've been getting a lot of weird phone well, calls. Well, you know, they have <laughs> that they have those apps that people can use. And I heard about this. It's like a second it's like one's called second phone number. And people can actually it'll generate a number and people can act you can actually use that as another phone number if you don't want to give anybody your actual phone number. Yeah. So the app uh. makes the number. So, so I, I don't so know how it would actually randomly – it doesn't make sense that it would actually randomly pick anybody's <clears throat> number that would already be existing. Yeah, but, but there, there are, so there are there. things like that out there. I had to do that for uh, Facebook because remember – or I, uh-huh. I didn't, didn't tell the audience, but like um, they were spying on me. They locked me out of my account because I refused to give them a form of identification that that shows my name on it. So I made another Facebook profile and just like generated a phone number and everything. Yeah. Well, they wanted you, and they they also wanted you to send them your birth certificate. Yeah. So, well, Do you remember it, that? It it said that was just part of the one of the forms of identification. They they said like ID or birth certificate or whatever. Why in the world would anybody do that? Why would anybody send that to yeah. someplace like Facebook? Like Facebook rec- is is anything official <laughs> in any capacity. Yeah, a recreational site like meant for you to just go there and look at pictures and memes and Yeah, know, or is it going to well is it going to become like your social security number? Do you remember how your social security number when they first well nobody actually physically in here remembers this but in the 1930s, when they came out with the Social Security number, they said, well, this is just your Social Security number so you can get your benefits, and it's never going to be used in any other capacity. <laughs> Not going to be used for identification purposes. Now, 80 years later, everywhere you go, you have to use your Social now Security number. Now it's your UPC. Number. Right, yeah. Think about everything that you use now, all these websites that will allow you to log in through Facebook now. Because that's easy. Yeah. So, like, they that's have all point. your profiles. So, is Facebook going to kind of become like that? It's like the new, it's like those Black the Black Mirror episode. Yeah. It's about, like, social media. Stars. That yeah. was creepy. Dude, I did read a part the other day, though, that... Um, there was an Orville episode like that, too. Facebook um, usage is down. The average person is looking at Facebook about two minutes less a day than they were. Good. Really? Well, not, two minutes is not a lot for some people. <laughs> well, you you guys remember the the great MySpace migration too? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yep. And, and uh, it's gonna, it's eventually going to happen again. Like, well, I'm surprised that it, that, it, that it hasn't happened already. Honestly, yeah, something less annoying that allows us to do all the things Facebook used to. Because yeah. when Facebook started, it was just you know it was mostly a lot of younger people, and now it's I've noticed that Facebook's mostly for people that are that are you know middle aged to. To older people now. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of these other younger people are starting to go to, like, Snapchat and Instagram, Instagram. and all these things. Of course, Facebook oh. owns Instagram, so they win either way, right? So, yeah. That, I know, it's just weird how the te- <coughs> technology has become so pervasive in our lives. And stuff like that. It's like, they won't let people use... They won't let people use... A, a nickname, yeah. But there's all there's there's just a crapload of bots out there, fake bots that will steal people's information 
And those hardly ever are getting shut down. Uh, no, they, they do. They get cleaned out all the time. but um, They just pop up just as fast. Yeah. They, they have all kinds of algorithms and everything that, that does search people's informa- profile information to, to determine if, it's, if they're real people or not, you know, mm-hmm. based on how many posts have been made and everything else. Well, that's good because those things are annoying. Oh, yeah. I love those. The friend requests from like a person that only has one friend and then just started their account like last month. Overly buxom female. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember somebody that we used to work with, Luke? I know David over here remembers this. This guy that we worked with that was actually talking to one of those bots. Uh. And he was talking like he was talking about how he was talking to a porn star and all this stuff. And we're just sitting there just thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Talking to a porn star. Oh, man. And Luke finally figured out that he's talking to a bot. And like you crushed his world when yeah. you told him that too. <laughs> Uh, just crazy. People will fall. For, just they will fall for this shit yeah. every single time. And just, and it, because you could generally tell if it's like an overly attractive girl that you think, oh, that she don't want to have anything to do with me. And then th- down there is like the, every, everybody down there is like you know these old lonely men, and then there's like maybe one like other kind of person. He's like, that's a bot. <laughs> and most of the time, it's people that. Most of the time, it's people that you. That you that you that I'm already friends with on Facebook. The one the one of those. I'm like, thanks. I know who to blame for this one. <laughs> it's like they deliberately target people. What were you saying about two hundred thousand antelope? Oh yeah, I don't know. Let me pull that article back up. Yeah, I was just looking. I was breezing through the strange news articles, and there was this thing about how um, strange weather triggered bacteria that killed two hundred thousand endangered antelope, like in a matter of hours. Where was this? <clears throat> this was Kazakhstan. <laughs> Kazakhstan. Oh, Kazakhstan. Where, <clears throat> yeah. where Borat's from? <laughs> Kazakhstan is the greatest. Well, that's weird. Yeah. So apparently, it's a little a, unsettling. There's a bacteria that was already present in the animals, but when the weather got to just the right humidity and just the right warmth, the bacteria just kind of like exploded and went rampant. And these animals that were fine, like just grazing, eating normally, three hours later, they were just dead. Wow. Crazy that something like that could just happen to, like, a huge population. <clears throat> no, that's, God, that's a God myth. hit the exterminate button. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we've got, for episode 199, yes, we're getting, we're getting much, much closer. And we may or may not have already done episode 200. It's kind of weird how that works out. But we've got Micah Hanks coming on, and he's going to be joined by... Jason Pentrell and James Waldo, and they all three of them have formed something called the Seven Ages Research Group. So we're going to talk to them about what they're hoping to do with this and some of their archaeological digs and all that good stuff. So, Luke, if you don't have anything to add, we'll go ahead and go to the interview. I, I do have to fart, but it's going to be another minute or two. All right. Well, how unfortunate we're going to miss that. <laughs> all right. We'll be right back, guys, on Conspiratorial. <laughs> Conspiratorial. 
Welcome back, guys, to Conspiracy Normal. And for episode 199, I thought it would be good to have one of our favorite guests. But this time, he's actually brought two other guests with him, and that's Micah Hanks. Micah, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Adam, good as always to be here, my brother. Been missing you guys. My Absolutely, brother, my man. Nashville, yeah. Absolutely, and we, we miss you too. Uh, but you have two other people with you that have never been on Conspiracy Normal before, and that's Jason Pittrell and James Waldo. And you guys have come up with something called the Seven Ages Research Group. That's right. And yep. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Now, obviously, Micah, you, know, you and I, we go way back. You you were like our third or fourth guest on this show. But uh, Jason and James, I, I, I have met Jason in person. James, I have not. But uh, let's actually start with James because I want to get kind of like you guys' background and – Kind of like the how you got interested in what we're going to talk about tonight. Well, thanks for having us on, Adam. Absolutely, uh, thank you for coming. Like, just the backstory of James Waldo. Sure, yeah. I mean, just you know how you got interested, and because kind of, we're going to talk about archaeology uh, a lot, okay. Okay. and how you kind of got interested in that subject, and kind of what you bring to the table in in, in this triumvirate here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'll just you know start from the beginning. It, um, I was going to kind of make a joke about the airplane movie, how they said, you know, the earth was formed and there was dinosaurs and then the Arabs came, and they took all the oil, but we'll just start with me. Sure. So, <laughs> uh, I think I've always sort of had an interest in science. I've always kind of had this inquiring mind, you know, <clears throat> but I'll, I'll, I have to say that as far as geology goes, um, years ago, uh, when I was a private in the army, I, I lived in, I was stationed in Washington state up at Fort Lewis and uh, on the weekend, some friends of ours, uh, friends of mine, we would go camping up in the Cascade Mountains. And I'm a southerner, so I'm not used to seeing, you know, these snow-capped peaks. So I thought it was the greatest thing ever. But one weekend, we went out and saw Mount St. Helens. And it just left a lasting impression on me. So uh, when eventually I got off of active duty and I went to college, I, you know, decided to be a geology major. And, uh, and you know, here I am. And so, you, so you are you are you a ge- geologist? Like, um, do you right, have a yeah, PhD yeah. in geology? Professional geologist. I'm okay. Licensed to practice geology. So there's you can have a geology degree, but it's sort of like being a professional engineer or a lawyer who takes a bar test. There's the equivalent of the bar test for geologists that you take, and then you're you know in your license. Gotcha. Okay. And and Jason, um, kind of your background, what you kind of bring to the table. Uh, sure. Well, for me, um, an interest in archaeology is a lifelong thing. Um, I always say, you know, you, you have people who maybe get interested in archaeology after a college course or uh, maybe watching a documentary on TV or something like that, and it kind of sparks their interest. And then there's the group of people who just have that interest from, you know, as early as they can remember, and that was always me. Um, so, you know, grew up in a very historical area. Uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. So there's, you know, history always was around. Oh, yeah. All types of history, everything from Civil War, Revolutionary War, um, just, you know, constantly surrounded by it. So my entire life, it was just kind of an interest of mine. Um, and then it just grew and grew as I got older. Uh, originally, I wanted to be an archaeologist, but um, after really looking into the money to be made in that career field and how difficult it could be. Sometimes I kind of switched 
majors a little bit. So um, my education's in environmental science and environmental management, um, specializing mostly in marine environmental science. Um, also, you know, different biological species, highly migratory species, sharks, tuna, bluefish, uh, billfish, different things like that. So that's uh, kind of where my background in education comes from. But as far as uh, being an avocationalist archaeologist, that's truly my obsession. Uh, the peopling of America is my main interest. I also uh, have a big interest in Egyptology and, and other classical cultures. So um, that's kind of where I got to where I'm at. But it's always always been with me since I was a child. What brought you guys, and any of you guys can answer this question, but what brought you guys kind of specifically this interest in the archaeology of of the Native Americans, those that time period? There are a lot of things that draw us collectively to that area of interest, to that period in time. And really, when we say collectively Native American studies, we can be looking at anything from more recent studies to the archaic period, all the way back to Paleo-Indian and before this. Right now, we are in a period, I think, where not only in American history, but really worldwide, we are ever and truly constantly pushing the envelope in terms of our conception of early human migrations out of Africa into different parts of the world, into North America. We're looking at geological discoveries that are reshaping our notions of, again, very wide-scale, worldwide uh shifts, I think. And really, I, I'm trying to think of a term to use that isn't cataclysm, but really, I think that word is the best for it. Because again, one of the preeminent things right now that we're seeing, and in fact, within just the last few days, a new study that talks about this massive biomass burning that occurred around 12,008 to 12,900 years ago. Right. This, of course, directly coincides with a period. And I know that you know Randall Carlson. He talks about this a lot. The Younger Dryas period, which is really, truly, I think, climatologically, geologically, and otherwise, what we use as essentially the benchmark, the model for a rapid, sudden climate change in ancient times. This is something also that interests us, and this, of course, coincides with archaeologically in North America, what we identify as the Clovis culture and a sharp decline in their presence represented in the archaeology and other things as well. I know that I was interested and have been for a long time in the various theories about what exactly around that period, 12,900 years ago, what happened. And when Jason and I met, I would say, if anything, it was probably, Jason, our paleontological interests that we shared. He and I met in Charleston, South Carolina. Around that time, I'd been corresponding with James Waldo. And James and I, of course, also share, just as Jason and I do, and all of us here, I think, present, a variety of different areas and interdisciplinary interest in scientific analysis and things like this. And not just for the sake of being in mysteries. It's just a matter of really understanding that at the outset, all things that can be determinable and studied through science do have a mysterious quality. We are looking for answers, and really that's what science in part attempts to do. So we share an interest in things that remain unanswered by science. But again, for me, really it was this this model for ancient sudden climate change represented by the Younger Dryas, Jason brought an archaeological uh, component to that, which we began to really have. It began with, I think, he and I acknowledging we both had an interest in this thing. We set aside some time to make a phone call one day. Jason, that was a good three or four hour phone call. And it was the first of many. And those con conversations continue. Uh, but at some point, uh, I remember I went down for a research weekend with Jason, and he said, by the way, we're going to Skype with James Waldo today. And James had 
been, I mean, again, James Waldo is one of these unique people being, a, you know, again, a professional geologist. He was going out collecting samples of things and sending them in a controlled manner to Jason and I to be able to do tests on in our own uh, in our own facility. And so he and I are sitting there Skyping with James, uh, testing soil for for any kind of magnetic anomalies, things like this. We can get into more about why we were doing that and why that's interesting. But the long story short, again. This kind of is the reason that we came together in interest in ancient mysteries, cataclysms, climate change, archaeology, what archaeology has to say about that, the people in the Americas, and, and again, what this all says about North American history. There does seem to be sort of a dark age that we went through around 12,000, 13,000 years ago, and modern archaeologists, geologists, climatologists, and other areas of science are still trying to really understand what happened, but our interests go well beyond that. That's just the crux that kind of brought us all together. Yeah, I think there's a University of Kansas study that has come out about this, uh, the, the, the possibility of a comet impact, which, you know, is what Randall Carlson has been saying for years and years. So it seems like there's becoming a little bit of a, an acceptance that this theory is coming out. And uh, I, I know you guys have seen this because I've, you know, followed you guys on Facebook. You guys have been posting a lot about it. That's true. Yeah, well, it's it's one of those topics that uh, kind of, you know, it started as planting the seed of an idea several years ago, and now that's beginning to to grow into fruition. So we're seeing a lot more research being dedicated to this subject, a lot more science being applied to it as well. And uh, the most recent paper is just sort of uh, looking at the, the biomass burning, which is another indicator of... Right of an impact. Um, of, of course, you have the platinum anomaly, um, the microspherules, micro and, um, you know, there's various other indicators on that, you know, Clovis layer of, of some type of impact 12,900 years ago. Um, there's a lot of other uh, evidence that's been gathered that has yet to be released that uh, the Seven Ages team is privy to right now that we're really not uh, able to discuss at this point, but we will as time moves forward throughout 2018. But um, yes, there, there's more evidence coming. You will see more papers being published on this. Uh, that I can assure you. And uh, what's coming out so far, I, I think, is, uh, is rather than discussing it in broad terms, what you're really beginning to see from the science is very specific indicators that are helping to paint a larger picture. And that's what you're seeing every time one of these papers gets released. And please allow me to add also, and James, uh, if you wanted to, to jump in or if Adam, you had another question, uh, I'll be brief. But I do want to point out, often you'll hear, especially among uh, fringe groups and things like this, people will go on podcast programs like this and you'll hear them drop those keywords. Well, there's more information that we have, but we can't talk about it right now. So let's just dispel any kind of questions about that kind of a thing. Uh, when we say that we aren't, talking about certain things that are known in the scientific community. That's because, uh, and I can speak specifically about Jason and I, we had a conversation with Dr. James Kennett uh, late last year. He's a very well-respected geologist who has studied this this issue, this period in history for a long time. Uh, he and others in the community, uh, Dr. Albert Goodyear, there are a lot of fine folks who are involved. They often will communicate with one another and through our different correspondences in that area of interest, geology, um, I guess there's some paleontology involved too, but mostly archaeology and geology. Uh, again, there has been a cumulative effort to to search for information that doesn't necessarily prove 
that a comet impact happened, like everybody's talking about right now in the news this week. But sure. more so, I think they've been trying to find good evidence that disproves it, which is why the consensus opinion for years has been that thermohaline circulation disruptions, which were probably a natural process of deglaciation coming out of the last ice age, was the likely reason for the re-entry into a short ice age before we entered the Holocene. But again, there appears to be forthcoming more and more evidence. The the recent paper with the biomass burning on a, on a large scale, that's one evidence of this, you know, something that actually happened, either an impact, something that would have caused, uh, again, the actual fire, the actual widespread uh, burning. There's been a lot of discussion about looking for such things as a terrestrial impact site. Again, what we know from having discussed this with num a number of people in the field is that more information forthcoming will clarify all of the, again, hypotheses that are already well accepted, at least among the comet researchers, that some sort of an impact occurred. The point is, what we're waiting on is proper peer review of that kind of information, not somebody claiming that they've got a slide with an alien mummy on it or something ridiculous like that, and they're just going to sit on the information. You know, again, <laughs> there's a very distinct difference between people saying, well, we know something, but, you know, we, we're waiting for the right time to tell. We, it's nothing that we have or that we know. It's what we're waiting on the scientific community to, to, a, to put to a proper peer review process and go through a proper publication process so that it can be presented in a scientific way to the community. But again, just to paraphrase what Jason's saying, I do feel that there will be vindication for those who have long maintained that an impact is the likely causal agent here. I was very skeptical of that, as Jason knows, for a very long time. Uh, through our conversations, correspondences, and our own field research, over time, I think I've come to feel that very strongly there will be vindication for the comet hypothesis, an impact yeah. hypothesis, in relation to the Younger Dryas. Yeah, I feel that way. I feel that way as well. Let's talk briefly about the name Seven Ages, what that means. That's a really good question, by the way, because uh, there have been others who have asked about that and expressed some curiosity about it. It comes from Shakespeare, but it's it's also indicative of a number of things. There's also a concept from antiquity, the six ages of man, but sometimes also referred to as the seven ages of man. And really that concept, the seven ages of man, which Shakespeare also referred to, all the world's a stage and we are merely players. You know, that that is something that had been borrowed really throughout antiquity in, in various iterations in literature. But seven's a lucky number for me too, and I just liked the name. And yeah. uh, when 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 I had been trying to come up with the different ideas for what we would call this, I was working very closely with Jason, uh, James, and I were. I th I'm sure James, we were corresponding at that point, but I don't, I don't think that we were sitting down saying, you know, we're all going to put this team of researchers and and be very science minded. We didn't know what it would be at that point, but I remember nightly conversations with Jason. Uh, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? We must have gone for weeks through hundreds of different names. And the one that we settled on was Seven Ages yeah. uh, because we liked the Shakespearean reference. We liked the concept borrowed from antiquity. Again, I think there were a lot of things about it that we liked, and, and that's what we chose. It's definitely hard to, to find a name that fits. Um, well, yeah, these days with web properties and mm -hmm. marketing and all these kind of things, it's no big mystery. It's, it, it comes down to three simple factors. Does the name mean something to you? Mm -hmm. Does the name uh, is it something that there's a, a domain available for? <laughs> you know, uh, and as, that's not to demystify it, but again, I can, I know that Jason especially can speak to uh, sharing in that laborious process of trying to come up with a name that said something to all of us. But I think that and, and the, the lads here would agree. I think it's something that we have grown into very much, and and as Jason especially will tell you, seven ages in its own way over the last year, make of this what you will, but it almost seemed in a synchromystical way to kind of manifest itself. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a good name. I um when yeah. I when I first thought when I first heard it, I thought it might have had something to do with them, different periods of archaeological history or something like that. But well, it certainly does. But yeah, you know, one of the other things about it is it's just kind of a cool name. So as this thing's taken on a life of its, of its own, you know, Mike said we've grown into it in a way, but in a in a in another way, it's sort of absorbed us. You know, it's sort of like this thing's taken on a life of its own and sort of, you know, in a, in some ways we've, we've sort of been just along for the ride. I think, I think these guys would agree with me on that. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, much so. Um, it's, it's more so than us creating it. It really has created us. And I know that sounds kind of hokey or whatever, but once we really started working on it, uh, it just began to essentially manifest itself. It's like this seven ages project is going to happen because everything is falling in proper order. And once we made that sort of epic journey north uh, to all those archaeological sites, which we can get into if you'd like, that's when it really, I think, woke everybody up on the team. And we came back and we were like, what just happened? I mean, it literally took three or four days to kind of soak it in and be like, wow. What exactly just happened to us? Because it, it was pretty phenomenal. And I knew immediately what happened. I was sitting there thinking, even during the drive back, going to you know, thinking to myself, I'm not going to be able to answer any more of Adam's phone calls because I've insured for myself <laughs> for the next six months more work than I can handle. But you know, some things in life are worth getting the shovel out and digging for, which is why we've hashtagged our own hashtag: dig deeper. <laughs> yeah, and I and I definitely want to talk about some of the digs that you're involved in some of these uh, different sites but i think it's important for the audience and and for us too um i wanted to ask you guys about can we kind of go over kind of like the different periods that archaeologists um historians what have you that they divide native american culture into who wants to take that one Uh, oh yeah sure so uh, there's there's a rough timeline, and this is one of those things that you can go to 10 different sources and get 10 different approximate dates, um, but they're, they're general. They're pretty much generalized. So, uh, of course, you have what's known as the Paleo period, all right? So when, we're, when we refer to the Paleo period or, you know, when we're talking about Clovis people, uh, something along those lines, we're referring to uh, – about 12,900 years ago and back. Okay. So we have the Clovis people, uh, you know, here in a large, well, not large, but a sizable number in North America. And then we have what we refer to as pre-Clovis. So pre-Clovis is... And just to say that Clovis refers to the place that these particular types of arrowheads were found. Clovis, New Mexico. Well, yeah, that's referring okay. to where the name comes from, but right. clothes should be thought of more as a as a culture rather than gotcha. a, a particular time period. Okay. Um, so when you, when we say Clovis, think of it as a a a culture, so a group of people who are known for the fluted point that they created. So the the Clovis point itself, the projectile point, um, is, is extremely unique uh, in many ways because of the, the fluting and, and a fluting is essentially a a groove that starts on both sides or it can be on one side. But generally, when we're talking Clovis, it's a, uh, a groove uh, that goes from the base of the point 
anywhere from halfway to three quarters up the point, and it's a, it's a deep groove on either side. Um, so that's what they're known for, and it's it's considered to be high technology of the time, or because it's so difficult to create. It's it's even by modern standards, a modern day flint nappers, which is the art of creating uh, projectile points. It's um, you know it's extremely difficult to pull that off. So they're recognized for that for for being a uh, a unique culture who had the ability to create these these high technology lithics. So when we say Clovis, we're talking about that that culture. And then the term pre-Clovis is generally referring to um, anyone who seems to be present in the North America continent prior to the arrival of what we consider to be the Clovis culture. And that's when we really get into the mystery of exactly how many people were here. Who were those people? Where did they come from? Uh, what portions of the country did they occupy? And you know what was the daily life like for those people? And how far back into antiquity do they go? And that's when we start discussing sites like Monteverde down in South America. You start discussing the Metacroft Rock Shelter, the Topper site in South Carolina. Um, while you do find that Clovis layer at places like Topper, um, you do also have a, a vast presence of what's known as pre-Clovis. Uh, and then, so we go pre-Clovis and then Clovis, and then we get into whatever happened around 12,900, which seemed to have a significant impact on the Clovis people. Um, not necessarily killing all of them off, but definitely impacting the culture to a great degree. Um, immediately following that, on the other side of whatever happened 12,900 years ago, you get into what's known as the early archaic um, and you have a what's called a transitional paleo time period there. So we're coming out of the paleo times, and that's reflected in the lithic assemblages. So we're beginning to see these projectile points um, change. We're beginning to see tool-assisted fluting rather than um, the typical way that the Clovis were doing it without a tool assisting. So things are beginning to change, and the the way we recognize these different time periods are through stratified archaeological sites. So sure. if you get a really good stratified archaeological site, it's like a layer cake. And when you dig down, you can uh, sometimes find things that are carbon datable, uh, just different things that indicate a time period. So next we get into the early archaic, then the middle archaic, then the late archaic. And the archaic period, both early, middle, and late, is the longest uh, time period. It's, it's over thousands and thousands of years. And then we get into the woodland period. And that's when you start to see things like the Hopewell culture. Um, early the, part of that, you see the Adena culture, different yeah, words, the, words the, like that of different people that we see. The mound builders. Period. Okay. So the Mississippian period was what was kind of going on in this country right up into the point of um, contact with, you know, Spanish explorers, conquistadors, de Soto, all those fellows. So we were, we were at the, um, we were at the Mississippian period when they first made contact. So the, that's a, a rough outline of the period. So pre-Clovis, Clovis, early archaic, middle archaic, late archaic, woodland, Mississippian, and then historic. So the woodland period is where the most of the mounds were built, like the Serpent Mound, um, Cahokia, all those places. So that's when we 
that's really when we start to see the advent of um, less hunter-gatherer and more uh, agricultural, more city-centered, um, more religious complexes, things like that begin to develop um, with the mound-building cultures of the Ohio Valley, and that pushes right on up into the Mississippian time period. Um, the mound culture really beginning, most, most people agree, with the Adena culture. Um, they sort of kick that whole thing off, and then you get into the Fort Ancient culture, which built on that. Uh, the Hopewell, who made places like you know the Seep Earthworks and the Newark Earthworks, as well as Mound City, um, and it, it just kind of grows into the the larger Mississippian sites, like the one Micah just visited down in Georgia, um, the uh, Oak Mowgli site. So Ooh, okay. yeah, it just gets bigger and bigger with the Mississippian culture, and then upon contact. Uh, once they're exposed to the diseases and all those factors, they begin to to fall off. So. Yeah, where did the Etowah Indian mounds? Where they fall into the woodland? I guess that time period. Beginning then, yeah. Okay, okay, and that's roughly around like what ten hundred A.D. something like that, or maybe a little earlier. Uh, no, um, you can you can go back a little bit further than that. Generally speaking, uh, like I said, if you're you're looking at the Adena mounds. Um, so you're, you're looking at, uh, maybe 3000 years ago up, you know, moving forward. And then, you know, as we get closer to, um, 2000, 1000, you begin to start to see, or 1000 is was when you really start to see the big, bigger, you know, your Cahokias and all those type places are building up and that carries on over up into contact with the, with the historic period. Okay. So with, with contact with Spanish conquistadors. Okay. Yeah, primarily like in the south, as you mentioned, like the Soto and then in the southwest Coronado right. and all that. Yeah. Um, so what's the earliest date that's given for the settlement of North America? Well, I guess there's some dispute about that, isn't there? Right. I, 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 I was going to say that's a. Hmm, what's the official bit. line now as it stands? Well, okay, let me preface this and then I'll throw it over to the guys here. Uh, there was a recent article, I believe, in the National Post, which had been, you know, again, it had been really a taking political issue with a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation documentary, which featured Dennis Stanford from the Smithsonian. I don't want to get into that whole debate because it was that was having to do with a controversial theory known as the Solutrean Hypothesis. But at one point in the article, it says that the majority of scientists agree that the human occupation in North America, you know, occurred around 14,000 years ago. And 14,000 years ago being pushed back about 1,000 years earlier than the previous 13,000-year, you know, benchmark, which had at one time been the Clovis arrival. You know, it was long held that Clovis, uh, or again, what Jason so eloquently described as the Clovis culture, because again, keep in mind, we don't know if this is a diverse group of, or several, you know, several different groups of people who utilized a similar technology, i.e. the fluted lithic blade, or if it was one particular group that shared this technology, one cultural group. Again, there, this is something that is not agreed upon by archaeologists as to what exactly was representative in terms of demographics and everything at that time period. But what we sure. do know is that for the longest time, Clovis was, again, the the benchmark in terms of arrival in North America. The first 
the whisper, as you might say, of pre-Clovis, to borrow another term that Jason used there, go back to really, I would say, early 1970s, you know, 1972, 1973, at a site in North America that we visited, the team and I, we went to the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter in Washington County, Pennsylvania. It was in 1972, primarily in 1973, and by that time, radiocarbon dates had been published for the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter that showed earlier than Clovis occupation at this rock shelter re-entrant. And we can talk about the geology of that site in a second. James can uh, term that better than I can. But the point you want to know is that after all of this, again, at Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, what we determined was that the conservative date for the earliest habitations at that site was 16,000 years. And that is not even taking into consideration the aforementioned site in Chile, Monte Verde, which goes back and shows evidence of human habitation as early as 35,000 or so, well, 33,000 years ago, I think. Two different actual locations at that archaeological site there near Puerto Montt, Chile. So the point that yeah, you Yeah, it's, it's a long way down from Alaska to Chile. It so. certainly is. And of course, this raises a number of questions right. in terms of had people been migrating from a southerly route and coming northward? Had people been coming across? you know, from from the Bering Strait area, but had they been using watercraft, sailing vessels of some kind, and sailing along the coasts, and would that have brought them further south? Uh, had some of them gone inland? It's probably all of the above, in truth. But the, the point that needs to be driven home is that, again, Monte Verde, although it was discovered, I believe, in 1975, excavations began there in 1976 under Tom Dillahay, it was the first site that pr- that offered indisputable evidence of a pre-Clovis habitation in the Americas, and one that went back, again, tens of thousands of years before Clovis. But as far as North American archaeology, one of the longest periods of human habitation at any given site anywhere has been the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter. So when the National Post talks about 14,000 years ago and that this being a consensus in terms of a period that scientists agree upon as being the entry date of humans in North America, that's simply not correct. And it goes to show, again, that often people gloss over these things in the, in the modern media. They will, they will latch on to an idea that they consider to be a consensus scientific attitude or idea, and they don't actually know the science themselves. I've seen Scientific American doing this a lot recently in terms of discussing the megafaunal overkill hypothesis. There are many people who take decades old ideas of things like the Clovis being the first people to arrive, the Clovis killing all the megafauna, and these kind of things. These are simply not ideas that are supported by modern North American archaeologists. So to come back to your question, and then I'll hand it over to the lads here, 16,000 years ago, I would say would be North American early occupation, but there are some disputed sites like Bluefish Cave. No, no, I'm sorry. Bluefish Caves is not disputed. As of, <laughs> as of this last year, It's it's been actually well known for years. Bluefish Caves, actually, though, there was a, a paper that came out this year that absolutely indisputably said that, you know, I think around 25,000 years ago, there's evidence of human habitation. When I meant to say disputed sites, I meant to say Topper in South Carolina, which is a very interesting site. We're very interested in it. There are radiocarbon dates there that are suggestive of 20, 30, maybe even as much as 50,000 years. Really? Of age at a, yeah. But that is that is a site that remains controversial. So let me be clear about that. There are plenty of sites like that. Calico Hill... Uh, maybe one of those, um, you know, we could name others. But the point is, is that, again, it is no longer contested that the Clovis, uh, or rather that there were people here before the Clovis boundary. Uh, that is an idea that was overturned a long time ago. And it's sad when you still see people in, in modern academician uh, groups trying to act as though those decades old ideas, which have been long overturned, are still the consensus opinion. Like Michael Shermer? 
Well, yes, I yeah. we have to mention Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm attacking Michael Shermer because as far as a skeptic, he carries himself in a very respectable way. He's friendly and approachable. I appreciate that in anybody who's trying to speak for science. But what Michael Shermer did when he went on the Joe Rogan podcast is he tried to refer to Monte Verde and called it Mesa Verde. He called that an anomaly and said, where are all the sites between Monte Verde and Clovis? He says, Monte Verde is just a, an anomaly. Well, there are plenty of sites, including Meadowcroft Rock Shelter that the team and I have been to. Plenty of sites that exist in terms of temporal relationships between Monte Verde and Clovis. And the fact that he didn't know that and yet tried to defend the point, I think, really illustrates the problem. Sure, it may not be his job, since he's not an archaeologist, to know these things. But if he's going to engage in a debate with people who are considered fringe theorists like Graham Hancock and who's that Randall Carlson guy, you know, <laughs> but but they actually know the science better than he does. And he's still trying to argue it with them. That is a real problem. So I'm not trying to and I don't think that James or Jason and I, I don't think any of us are trying to drive home an argument for fringe ideas. We want acceptance of good scientifically indisputable ideas that nonetheless some mainstream academicians continue to try and dispute. If our aim and objective and foremost, and we need to make sure that what people go out there to try and find is that accepted truth, not what somebody decades ago was trying to say was true, and it's an idea that's been overturned long ago. Yeah. So um – what Micah was talking about just a few minutes ago with the uh, with the rock shelter, just to elaborate on that a little bit, that, that's a naturally formed thing where you have like a overhang of of uh, very resistant rock over beds of rock that are less resistant. So over time, that weathers away, and, and it makes a nice shelter for somebody to you know stay in. Um, one of the other things that that uh, that you don't hear talk about very often, but I'm sure geologists probably think about it. There's, you know, we've only got evidence of habitation going back, you know, so many years, you know, earliest maybe 30, 50,000 years in, uh, in some places and maybe further back in, uh, in South America. But there's no geologic reason why the continent couldn't have been habitated um, much earlier than that, because all of the conditions that existed when, uh, when the known migrations came, came over existed 100,000 years ago. And uh, even going back further than that, um, and that's because the last ice age lasted about a hundred thousand years. So, like right now, we're in a in an interglacial period, and those things last, you know, ten or twelve thousand years. We're at about we're at about eleven thousand, pushing twelve thousand years on this interglacial. These things usually come to an end sometime about now, um, before the previous ice age, which lasted about a hundred thousand years. There was an interglacial that was similar to this one. And before that, another 100,000-year-long 100, uh, ice age. So um, my point is those conditions existed. So if there were people that were in those areas that could have capitalized on that uh, geologic condition to be able to come to North America, they probably would have done it because the reasons that the people that we know about did were valid even in those times. So, Right, yeah. yeah. People could have been here a long, long time ago. Yeah, many right. different, I mean, through many different means. Evidence, it doesn't make it impossible. Yeah, uh, it doesn't even make it unlikely. We just don't have evidence for it. And I've long felt like since since the end of the last ice age, since you know we know that sea levels rose probably an average of about 400 feet uh, globally, a lot of that evidence is lost um, just to just to the oceans. So yeah, uh, yeah, 
you know, and a point I was thinking of earlier while I'm still thinking about it is, you know, the evidence for this possible impact uh, at the younger dries, that this drama that we're seeing playing out in science right now where the, that, you know, where the evidence is accruing and there's the battle back and forth about the hypothesis, you know, it wasn't so long ago that we were doing the same thing in science with the extinction of the dinosaurs um, at the end of the Cretaceous period. Uh, when I was a kid, nobody knew what killed the dinosaurs. It was a mystery. James, until, when I was a kid, we, we didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was a, until the Chicxulub crater was found. And then, and then there was the, uh, at the, at what they call the KT boundaries, the, the, the uh, Cretaceous uh, uh, tri, uh, tertiary boundary. There was evidence for, for an impact. So, you know, some people recognized that and argued for that. And then there were people that argued against it, just like we had today. So until that crater was found and we had the technology to find that crater, there was no real smoking gun for it. But once it was found, you know, it was pretty much all over with, but the, you know, with the crying, with, with the, with the skeptics of that. And now it's an accepted, it's right. basically an accepted fact in science. So the asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Yeah. Correct. Right. But there was a time we didn't know. We had no idea what killed the dinosaurs. We didn't. I mean, there were all kinds of speculations about it. And it's the same thing with the megafaunal uh, extinctions in North America and globally with like man tigers and all of these big. What killed these? Well, it was the the, uh, the paleo Indians just, you know, stabbed them all to death with spears <laughs> and, and arrows, which sort of makes it's, it sounds good, but it really doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. So, um but what makes sense to kill all of these animals off is a global catastrophe or, a, you know, at least in the northern hemisphere. That works, but we didn't have any evidence for it. Well, guess what? We're starting, we're starting yep. to get some evidence for it. And, uh, we, you know, it's not a closed case yet, but, you know, we're, we're down to the last couple of nails in the coffin, I think. Hey, listen, let me just interject, too. What James said is so important and fundamental to this entire argument. I think that a lot of people look at this as being like a – well, the scientists are either right or wrong, and the fringe people are either right or wrong, and it's like these two warring factions having some sort of future city street fight of some kind. The way that science works is, again, we go with what the most likely story or scenario is based on the evidence. And if a better hypothesis comes forward and there is demonstrable evidence later that actually uproots or overturns an older theory and presents a better theory – on down the road that suggests this is a causal agent in terms of explaining a wide array of different phenomena, then science will go toward that. But it relies on that evidence. And science isn't trying so much as to prove this or prove that, it's to disprove this or that. And again, you have to have good evidence to do that. And so that's why James has been saying that, again, ideas like the megafaunal kill-offs rather than die-outs via natural causes, in other words, human predation, that had been for some time an accepted opinion. And of course, among some academicians, they still try to uh, dare I say, no pun intended, drive that point home. But the, 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 th but the thing is, is that there is, I think, a better explanation. It has been a cumulative effort, however, over the last couple of decades to present the accumulation of that data, which is showing more and more likelihood for there being some sort of catastrophic event that occurred. And the evidence of this, I'll also point out, and this is coming back to something that Jason touched on earlier, is in regard to the Younger Dryas similar to what we determined with regard to the Cretaceous tertiary boundary recognized uh, in coincidence with the extinct, uh, extinction of the dinosaurs. And that, of course, involves the uh, a peak in geological strata where there is a prevalence of rare earth element. 
I think it had been iridium in relation to the uh, Cretaceous tertiary boundary. We found right. some some say that there's an iridium anomaly that can be found in certain strata in relation to the Younger Dryas too. But the big one, and there was a paper, a scientific paper that some friends and colleagues of ours even contributed to last year, which talked about the discovery of a platinum spike, a platinum anomaly that has been found coinciding with a lot of Clovis sites. So you think about the evidence of the scorching, the ammonium content that spikes in the geochemical tests, which seems to suggest widespread burning. This is what the recent study is talking about. There have been numerous studies, and I'm certain there will be more forthcoming that talk about evidence of an actual impact site. We have the platinum anomaly. We have evidence of all kinds of other geological data and other things, climate proxy data. It is more and more, I think, pointing toward the scientific reality of a cataclysm probably induced via an impact similar to what killed the dinosaurs. Are there any sites that are just off the coast? Because as James said, you know, when the Ice Age ended, that water filled in. So like the Chesapeake Bay, those places off the coast of Florida, is there anything that people are looking at that any of these sites that are right off the coastline? Well, there's there's ongoing research for that right now. Um, actually, on the first episode of Seven Ages Audio Journal, we talked to J.M. Atavazio, who is known for his work at the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter. He's also known for his contributions to the Vero Beach sites down in Florida, as well as the Wendover Bog people down in Florida. Something that he's not as known for that he's currently working on is trying to map and discover some of these offshore sites. Um, the difficulty with this is, uh, A, it's extremely expensive, obviously, to have the watercraft, to have the scientists and everything that you need. Um, underwater excavations are dangerous and uh, it requires a, a huge budget, which is always a problem with archaeological sites and is funding, as with just about anything. Uh, but, you know, you got to realize many of these cases, the old coast, you know, when we're talking about the Clovis people, was, you know, up to 100 miles further out than it is right. now. So we right. know that there's habitation sites out there, um, especially in places like the Chesapeake Bay that you mentioned, Adam. Uh, there's been scallop dredging boats there. You know, they're scraping the bottom and, and pulling up scallops and clams and different things in that, that region. And for many, many years, they've been pulling up uh, countless amounts of artifacts. Um, and that leads into a whole nother discussion because uh, – you may be familiar with the work of Dennis Stanford and Bruce Bradley with the Salutrian hypothesis. Well, that's kind of the area that they've based this off of for the potential of what they believe to be uh, Europeans coming across the ice sheets and settling in North America at some point because some of the the finds that have been discovered in that general region have a very distinct shape to them known as the laurel leaf, which we normally associate with that Salutrian culture of Europe. and. Uh, now, of course, that's extremely controversial. Um, it's It's been battled over ever since it came out. But yeah. regardless of that, um, they're, they're found there on a, on a, I wouldn't say regular basis, but over the years, there's been quite a few examples found. But other, you know, early archaic paleo pieces have all been found in that region because uh, while it is now a flooded out area, a bay, if you will, and, and all those rivers, it, it wouldn't necessarily have been back then. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, tons of inundated sites all around the entire coast. Uh, there's not just in North America, but everywhere. Um, they're, they're finding more and more of these all the time. But as mapping gets better, as uh, 
really, uh, depending on some big industries like the oil companies, they do a lot of a lot of bottom mapping in order to to discover areas to dig. And a lot of times they're responsible for finding uh, what could be archaeological sites, mammoth kill sites, all sorts of different things uh, completely by accident sometime. But they are using that technology and hopefully has that advances in coming years. We'll be able to locate uh, some of these these mammoth kill sites or some of these potential uh, habitation sites with a lot more accuracy. But right now, uh, it is very expensive. And of course, uh, we do have a shortage of archaeologists. We have a shorter shortage of manpower to really get out and explore some of these sites with people that have the qualifications to do so uh, in a professional and safe manner. The Salutrian hypothesis, let's since you brought this up, I, 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 I do want to talk about this because um, the first episode we did this year, I read this article. I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, probably should have sent it, sent it over to Micah. Um, but it was a um, for the Southern Poverty Research S, Southern Poverty Law Center (SPLC). Mm-hmm. So they did this whole article, and a lot of it they talked about ancient aliens stuff and how ancient <laughs> aliens has racist roots but they actually talked about the Salutrian hypothesis in that and they talked about how Andrew Jackson was a proponent of this idea that there was whites that came over in antiquity and they were all killed off by the Indians and uh, they were actually pulling a lot of the research from uh, one of Micah's favorites Jason Colavito um, now who's that? Uh, this is Southern Poverty Law Center that put this out, but Cola, yeah, but but Cola Vito's they were they they were using a lot of Cola Vito's work on this stuff, and my point in reading this was that you know if it seems like the whole Salutrian hypothesis has a lot of weight on it because of just there's all this tricky racial sensitivities about it, but my point on there was if it could be proven you know, without a doubt that people came over from Europe, then why is it, it just seems like it's, it's beholden to to our modern racial ideas and to the racial ideas of the 19th century. But there should be just the, it's, if the science proves it, then that should be it. So I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that, this whole hypothesis. I did see that article. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll simply uh, comment that um, the Salutrian hypothesis has been controversial for two reasons. Right. One of those reasons involves the fact that, again, if it is taken simply as a scientific proposition that there had been people from the Salutrian culture 15,000, 18,000, 20,000 years ago that came over from Europe and that they had settled parts of the Americas, we need good evidence in support of that. And in truth, there's very little in the way of genetic evidence that shows any kind of uh, lasting European presence in Paleo-Indian America. That's simply the truth. What the science says is that, again, all the evidence genetically points back to Asia. Okay. Now, the Salutrian hypothesis, if we want to kind of water it down and say that rather than this being the origin of, for instance, the Clovis culture, and we want to say that Salutrian hunters came over and that they hunted along the northeastern coast, which again, keeping in mind, like Jason was describing, that that coastline was further uh, out, again, with with the recession of the actual uh, coastline in relation to the glaciation period that we were in with the ice age. There was more accumulation of ice, i.e. frozen water along the 
you know, the, the polar regions and thereby there was uh, a lower sea level at that time and the, and the actual coasts extended further outward. So where the, the, the lithic evidence or the archaeological evidence for this paleo or pre-paleo-Indian presence would have occurred, i.e. Salutrians hunting along the northeastern coast, it's underwater now. It would not have been at that time. And that's why what appears to be a lithic presence uh, that some suggest to be Salutrian in origin has been dredged up off the Delmarva Peninsula, places like that. The idea that people came over and that they hunted, and yes, uh, Dennis Stanford and Bruce Bradley co-authored a book called Across Atlantic Ice, which kind of takes the, that, that concept, that again, decades, well, much more than decades, probably uh, old concept of the Salutrian hypothesis. Well, I should say of European contact with North America. Okay, the Salutrian hypothesis being one iteration of that. Stanford and Bradley build on that idea in a modern context and try to make an archaeological case based on lithic evidence for the Salutrian president, uh, pres- uh, presence in the northeastern Americas. The problem is, is that, again, modern science still disputes that genetically. But to say that the Salutrians came over, hunted, and maybe they didn't stick around for a, very long. Maybe they came over, they hunted. Maybe some of those who made it this far died or they went back. That's not that controversial, and I do think that there's plenty of evidence that supports that idea that people were making right. their way over that far across. In other words, making their way across from parts of Europe to North America. Now, people have tried to dispute it and say, well, there's no evidence that these people had any kind of boats, that they used any kind of watercraft. But the point you got to remember, I think the oldest boat ever discovered is around 8,700 years old, and uh, 8,700 8, years old, in other words. This is because the technologies employed for watercraft uh, are generally extremely perishable. Wood, you know, flotation devices in the ancient world, wood, seal skin, things like this, they're perishable. They're not going to last the test of time like the lithic president, uh, presence, i.e. wood, or I'm sorry, stone. When you have stone tools, those will last the test of time, and that's why archaeologists rely on the stone tools to such a great degree that they do. And so when people make an argument against something like Salutrians coming across the Atlantic and hunting in parts of northeastern North America, I mean, and saying that, well, there's no evidence that they had boats, it's going to be extremely hard to find evidence of those extremely perishable technologies tens of thousands of years, perhaps, later. That's It's almost impossible that that would occur unless there were extremely unique circumstances that led to the pre, uh, the pre, uh, preservation of one of these watercraft. So that is a highly speculative idea, but it seems quite evidential that at some point in the ancient world, i.e. the colonization of Australia and things like this, that watercraft had to have been employed. So it's not a crazy idea. And again, J.M. Right. Well, yes, and J.M. Adavazio, who we interviewed at the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, author of a wonderful book, which everyone should read. It's called The um, Strangers in a New Land what archaeology tells us about the first Americans. Uh, He's written a number of great books. Any of them are worth reading, but that book, he addresses this, and he says there's this this almost illogical aversion that people, some people have to the discussion about watercraft Mm -hmm. in the ancient world. So anyway, we could talk about that all night. I want to address the other issue, though, about why the Salutrian hypothesis is controversial. It doesn't just have to do with science and being able to prove that it happened. It also has to do with the fact that because it seems to entail Europeans arriving in North America prior to the groups that genetically are identified as being North American Indians of Asian descent and origin, it was an idea, the Salutrian hypothesis, that was sadly adopted by many in 
white nationalist circles. And yes, there is right. absolutely a racist component with that. And that's the problem. But the, to say that the Salutrian hypothesis is racist simply because it was adopted by groups who espouse ideologies of hatred, that, that is completely wrong. Unfortunately, the idea was taken, hijacked, and uh, misappropriated. And the truth is, those Salutrians who would have come over Okay, in ancient times, they would not have been white by the standards of Europeans as we recognize them today, which is, again, part of the fallacy of the logic employed by those who have used it to their to their means of trying to make the case that, well, there were Europeans that settled here first. When we look at, like, for instance, the debate about the mound builders in the 19th century, one of the big questions had been who built the mounds. And there were there were a number of instances where everything from crazy wild suppositions to even planting bogus artifacts in some of the Indian mounds that were suggestive of an Iberian or a Salutrian or other European kind of a presence, there were all kinds of strange things that were done so as to try and convince the scientific community that these could not have been built by the North American Indians. Also a racist idea. And that brings us around to ancient aliens. If you look at all of these things, the idea that they, you know, ancient people couldn't have built the mounds. They couldn't have built structures like the pyramids. They couldn't have engaged in this incredible uh, uh, architecture of the ancient world. They had to have had help. Whether we're saying that Europeans came over and helped them, whether we're saying that it was aliens that touched down and did it with spaceships and levitation devices, the problem is we're taking away from these people and their natural ingenuity, their capabilities, their technology, and their understanding of that technology and their and their capabilities – we take that away from them when we say that they couldn't have done it themselves and that they had to have help. The reality is the overwhelming archaeological evidence supports that indeed the Native American Indians built the mounds, that yes, the Egyptians built the pyramids, although there may still be some questions about the period during which the pyramids were built, and I won't get into that right now. I mean that simply in the, in the, in the sense that there are some lingering questions archaeologically about that, but that's, again, not strictly relevant to this conversation. As far as North America goes, we know that the Native American president, uh, presence can account for the phenomena we have observed, but that, is, that has been a long-disputed thing in American culture. And really, again, that question kind of originated around the time of the birth of archaeology and its proliferation as a science in North America, which is a fascinating bit of history unto itself. So again, the Salutrian hypothesis it came along a bit after that, but it is not in itself inherently racist. It's just unfortunate that it is an idea that some of racist ideology have ascribed to because it was a beneficial argument for them. That is unfortunate, but it, but the, the fact that people try to make it out as though to believe that this happened is racist, that is not an accurate portrayal of what the, archaeolo the archaeological evidence shows. Well, you know, it's kind of the language of that article that Southern Poverty Law Center put out was almost as if to say, well, just this hypothesis was used by these white supremacists, so therefore we just need to just totally throw it out. And that's, that, that you know, is, that's wrong, I think. It, I think it is wrong if there is evidence that supports the idea, even – and again, I don't see enough evidence personally that suggests that Salutrians come over and that they inhabited North America and that they actually they, – they stayed here, that they interbred with whoever may have been here at that time or whoever came along thereafter and that there's a genetic trail that goes back to ancient times that shows a lineage. Now, it is possible that some stayed and that some perhaps mm -hmm. did meet people from, from elsewhere. I mean it's, it's not impossible by any means. 
But again, what we're still looking for is evidence of that. But to say that people came over from Europe and that they were hunting along the northeastern United, or I'm sorry, it wasn't the United States at the time, but North American coast, to say that that alone is a racist concept, that is intellectual dishonesty, first of all. And when people try to say something like that, what they're actually doing is they're trying to marginalize the idea because they disagree with it, or it conflicts with an existing ideology or idea that they have accepted and would rather promote. And see, that's the issue that we seem to be facing in America these days. And I'll get off my soapbox here in a moment because I've got my two good fellows here present as well. But I mean, the problem that we face these days seems to be that if I disagree with what somebody says, then I'm going to marginalize it and make the idea out to be evil and associate it with someone who is evil. Again, here's a great example right. of somebody who's fallen into this recently, a Professor Jordan Peterson. Okay, the Canadian professor. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get into his politics or anything like that, but I'm going to say that this is a man who is a professor who is identified more as a liberal himself, but he's being called a fascist, uh, a racist. He has been called, been called a misogynist, likened to Hitler, and he's also been called the pro, uh, the de facto leader of the conservative movement based on the fact that he disagrees with certain policies in the Canadian government and education system. And again, it's a sad time in which we're living where if you actually – what he did was he was challenging this idea of radical political correctness. If we have become a society that is so politically correct that certain ideas, even like the Solutrean hypothesis, there may be some modicum of archaeological evidence in support of it. But the whole idea has to be thrown out because a, a few right-wing fringe wackos have adopted the idea to their own you know, ideals and, and whatever they're trying to prove to everybody. Again, that's missing the point entirely. And this is, to me, a cultural problem that needs to be addressed. I'll get off the soapbox now. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. I uh, want to thank my guys here for allowing me to take a moment to to speak to that point because it's important and it needs to be addressed as a social issue. Yeah. yeah. You're a force of nature, son. Thank you, sir. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it is, it is kind of sad. Um, you know, I had a guest just a little bit off topic here, but I had a guest that said that he got most of his news from RT and somebody basically told me that on Facebook that uh, they weren't going to listen anymore because they said that, you know, we were, we were, we just were on the fence and we really needed to come out and declare for the left-hand side. And it's just silly. So hold on now, Adam, because somebody came on your show and said that they got their news from RT, it's right. guilt by association and therefore right. you can no longer be listened right. to as a credible source of information, not that you were credible to begin with because of the kinds of things that you address. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and this, this same guest that said he got his news from RT also believes that there are bases on the moon and um, that he can live to the age of 300. But, but, but of course, because you had that guest, <laughs> you are no longer acceptable as a commentator or podcaster. Right. Your right. voice no longer matters. You've been marginalized to the fringe as well. I get it. Okay. Right. I see. Oh, that makes sense. You know, somebody could write a PhD thesis on the on the uh, psychology or the so, sociological uh, issues with uh, with this type of behavior. Mm-hmm. For it's sure, be, but I think it can be done. <laughs> so, a, I try to avoid people if I can. <laughs> so the I um, hear that the what are some of the sites that you guys have been to? Um, Recently, what's kind of like your most your most in depth site that you guys have been going to? Well, okay, we've been visiting. <laughs> I'm trying to see what everybody where everybody wants to go here. 
Some of the sites that we've visited uh, include, as we've mentioned, the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter. But we've we've discussed that a fair amount. Again, it's a, it's a period of long human habitation uh, in North America. Uh, but some other notable sites that we visited uh, recently, as Jason had pointed out earlier, we we spent some time up in Ohio. We visited the Mound City Complex, which is a Hopewell complex. Very interesting uh, due to the fact that it, like so many others in the immediate area, seem to bear a celestial uh, kind of a relationship uh, or in, in terms of their, their construction. These sites, these mound complex, complexes were built in relationship with celestial phenomena, the rising or the setting of the sun on the summer equinox, things along these lines. It just goes to show that, again, the builders of the mounds, indisputably Native Americans, uh, had had an incredible knowledge of celestial mechanics and things along these lines. One place I think that we all definitely agree was just breathtaking, and, and I'd love to get the guys' uh, feelings about this particular location, was the Serpent Mound. And on one of the episodes of the uh, Seven Ages Audio Journal, because if you aren't already aware, uh, Jason mentioned it already, but we do a podcast, the three of us here, uh, which is called the Seven Ages Audio Journal. It's available at sevenages.org, our website. Uh, on the most recent episode, we featured an interview with Dr. Brad Lepper of the Ohio History Connection, uh, where we got into not only discussing the Serpent Mound, but a lot of different aspects of Ohio archaeology. And again, Jason, maybe you can speak to Dr. Lepper's points about the construction of the Serpent Mound, because there's been as much debate about who built that and during which period it was built. Also, I think he really made a very – I mean, it, I was compelled by his case and who he believes was built but, uh, or, or, or was involved in the construction of the, of the mound. But again, Jason, I'll turn it over to you. It was just an incredible interview with Dr. Lepper. Yeah, it absolutely was, and it's that type of person that we're trying to bring to the podcast. Uh, we're reaching out and finding different guests. Uh, we're finding experts in their field, and I just want to take a moment before I talk about the Serpent Mound to um, kind of let everyone know who's listening. Uh, we're not just doing archaeology. I mean, we all have a, a passion for that, but we're also covering you know, various science topics, culture, uh, a lot of things in modern culture, a lot of things in, in the past. Uh, how they connect together. So we're looking at, you know, science, history, archaeology, um, any type of science discipline. So each time you listen, you'll get, you know, a little bit of each one of those things. But we we do kind of have a passion for archaeology because there's so much there to learn. Uh, and I think as we move forward, people will begin to realize just how much history there really is in North America. It's not all in Egypt. It's not all in Greece. It's not all across Europe. Um, those places are great. They're fantastic. But there's plenty of places right here in the United States that you can go see for yourself. And and you probably had no idea that they were there. And so it's kind of part of our goal and part of our movement to highlight some of those places so that, you know, the average person can go get to see something truly spectacular that's right there in their own neighborhood, in their own town that maybe they didn't even have any idea about. And honestly, uh, Dr. Lepper, speaks to that in episode four of the seven ages audio journal where he talks about many people in ohio have no idea that you know a lot of these things are actually man-made they just think they're grassy hills uh, they don't really even begin to understand the history serpent mound um the serpent mound is something that if it's within driving distance uh of your home uh it is absolutely worth going to see there's nothing else like that it is the world's biggest serpent effigy um, and it is it's truly spectacular. It's something I think everybody should see at some point. Uh, it should definitely be on that bucket list. Yeah. It's, now, oh, I'm sorry, Jason. Go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say it's it's disputed, you know, again, who built this thing. Um, there's a lot of symbology. There's a lot of uh, potential uh, celestial alignments and just different things that are found there. Um, but some argue for it being an Adena mound. Others argue for it being the later Fort Ancient culture because the serpents seem to be much more prevalent in the Fort Ancient um, iconography than we found with the Adena. Uh, however, you know, we get controversial carbon datings from different parts of the mound, uh, from the different mounds that are separate from the serpent itself that are found on the property. Some are Adena, some are Fort Ancient. Um, so there's an ongoing controversy. We could talk for an hour about that, but just know that even today, in 2018, it's still disputed over whether it, it truly is an Adena site uh, or a Fort Ancient site, or if it was a continuation of one such site. So maybe one culture began to develop it as the other culture came along, they just built onto it, uh, so on and so forth. But, um, you know, I would say it's without a doubt, it's, it's probably one of the top five archeological, uh, draws within the United States, something that everybody should see so being where it's located. It's, it's pretty simple to get there. Um, from most places, kind of right in the middle of the country. So most people should get out there to try to see it if they can. Yeah, Serpent Mound. Again, you know, one of the fascinating things about it is it was not recognized until we actually had uh, satellites that helped us orient directional coordinates apart from, you know, pure magnetic compasses. Uh, it wasn't immediately recognized that the setting of the sun on the day of the summer solstice aligns perfectly with the open mouth of the serpent. And the reason for this is because that, as James pointed out to us while we we're there at the site, the serpent mound was built in the actual uh, the the actual bed of a giant impact crater, an ancient uh, impact crater, and there are really, magnetic, yeah, huh. there, are magnet, there are magnetic anomalies still present there today as a result of this. Once we get satellites in orbit and, and we're we're able to utilize directional um, orientations apart from pure magnetic directional. Uh, uh, readings, we we began to realize that, hey, you know what? Uh, actually, our directional coordinates here at the Serpent Mound are slightly off. That's true north, and that would mean that the setting of the sun on the day of the solstice perfectly aligns. And they begin to pick up on all these sorts of things. There have been other claims that have been made. We absolutely cannot rule out that there are lunar alignments and things like this, but that is somewhat still disputed. It's It's absolutely solid that, again, the solstices and the Serpent Mound and its construction, there's definitely a correlation there, as Dr. Leper speaks about on the podcast. Again, arguably one of the most in incredible interviews, but he's he's not the only archaeologist that we have interviewed, and we are by no means only going to be, as Jason said, interviewing archaeologists on that podcast. Um, so do check out the shows that we've got available right now, but uh, that, that particular interview stands out. And again, you're going to hear stuff about the Serpent Mound that you never knew, and this coming from a credentialed academic uh, and I, I think in his own right, truly a gentleman and a scholar, if not a sage, perhaps, Dr. Leper. He's just, he's a wonderful guy. He's got a Carl Sagan-esque kind of a persona, and we just enjoyed that about him. A great interview, it really was. I'm going to have to get out there to check that that thing out sometime. It's only like five hours away from us here in yeah, Nashville. Worth, worth the trip. You know, when we got out there and, and got out of the car, we'd only been out a couple of minutes, and there was just this huge, like, like bone-vibrating boom uh you know it was like one of those mysterious booms Mike. <laughs> we, I, was, I was sitting there thinking you were talking about this thing i was like we had to start we are start calling referring to it as the boom snake you know by the way that's a good point okay james you brought up something that 
we were so taken in by the archaeological importance of the site that we don't ever talk about the fact that the minute we got out of the, the, the car, there was this weird phenomena. I looked on the maps to see where the nearest munitions deep been that they might have been engaging in a controlled explosion or something. That would not – I can't say that it wouldn't have been, but it couldn't have been close enough. But the fact that it was further away might account for an atmospheric refraction – Long story short, ladies and gentlemen, at home, there was a mystery boom that occurred. We got out of the car when we pull up at the parking lot there at the, uh, the Serpent Mountain. I said, guys, wait for a minute. I, I want to change into a different T-shirt here, put on my T-shirt, my jacket and stuff. And we're getting out of the car. And this, I mean, like he described it, this, you felt it in your chest. It was so loud and so deep. And it had to have really been something. It must have left quite an impact, uh, an impact on us. What happened after that that I so often forget to bring up the fact that it happened? This coming from a guy who owns the website, mysterybooms.com, a scientific website devoted to trying to understand via USGS data and other kinds of data the scientific causes for mystery booms. We we experienced one right there at the Serpent Mound of all places, which was just in keeping with all the weirdness that happened while the three of us were out there on the road back uh, in October. <laughs> they, the, the spirits have been waiting for the Seven Ages Research Group to get to the Serpent Mound, and it just – all happened all, all at once. You know, we're in Tennessee, we're in Tennessee guys, and um, what's around us that it would be interesting for people to see? Well, actually, our question to you is what's around you because we want to come and check okay. it out. And Adam, you got to take us around, right? Yeah, well, um, there are a few things, but um, an hour south of here, there is the Old Stone Fort, which is really interesting. Um, it's just an old, it's just a, I don't, I'm sure what the date of it is. Um, old, um, it's basically, they call it a fort. I mean, it's just a really like kind of like an enclosure and they think that it was used as like a ritual area. Um, there's also the Etowah Indian Mounds, which is closer to Atlanta. Uh, that's, God, that's a fascinating place. Just these three large Indian mounds. I tried to take Luke over there one time, but it was, uh, it was closed. Real That's interesting. Awesome. <clears throat> yeah. It, it, that it's fascinating. Um, again, just like an old yeah. ritual area. Um, and, and you know where I'm from Chattanooga, there's a lot there. Uh, Moccasin Bend is an old area of human habitation. People probably lived there for tens of thousands of years is what they're estimating. And an interesting thing about Moccasin Bend, they built I-24 around Lookout Mountain, okay, around the bend of the Tennessee River. And my dad told me that when they built I-24 there, this is like the 50s or 60s, they actually took dirt and ground from the other side of the river, which is Moccasin Bend. Okay, this is the interstate system that did this, and they went and shored up around the area of Lookout Mountain so they could build the interstate. Well, while they were ex- they were, you know, demolishing that ground, they said that you know they there was like skeletons being pulled out, skeletons falling into the river. There was no archaeological um dig there at the time, so they just kind of destroyed whatever was there. This is in the days before cultural resource yeah, management. Yeah. Yeah. And they had they had actually um now they've actually got some some excavations going on there. Uh, a little further up the river from there, um 
they built the Chattanooga River Park in like the 1980s. And actually, uh, one of my anthropology professors was part of that dig, and they were pulling um, burials out of that area. So there's a rich culture. There's a, a lot of rich stuff around uh, Chattanooga as well. So there's lots of interesting sites around. Um, but as far as like well-preserved, state-maintained, Etowah Indian Mounds, and of course, uh, also in Fort here are really interesting places to see. Those are fascinating. I don't want to throw Jason to the lions, but I do know for a fact that he's fascinated with Tennessee, uh, the state and it's, it's archeology span and knows a lot about the various things that are going on over there too. Jason, did you want to chime in on that? Yeah. Well, Tennessee is, um, well, the whole state, but especially Eastern Tennessee is just rife with night native American culture. I mean, it's actually one of the best places, um, in the country for finding artifacts. Uh, there's been, oh, countless amounts of, of artifacts pulled out of there. Everything from, uh, you know, farmers to exactly what you just described, major scale uh, construction projects along a river. I mean, that's, you know, mm-hmm. the, the rivers were the interstate for the native people of America. So that's how they, you know, go back to that watercraft discussion that we talked about earlier. Um, watercraft was an easier means of trying to get around than necessarily walking everywhere. So, I mean, you know, those river bends would have been habitation zones. Oftentimes when they find villages and burials and, and different uh, archaeological complexes and sites, that's exactly where you find it, um, right there off of a river. So, I mean, Eastern Tennessee has long been known from everything from paleo right on up to the Mississippian um, I personally own in my collection quite a few artifacts that are from that region, um, from that oh, general nice. area, counties that border um, right there along the mountains. So, uh, yeah, I personally have probably, I don't even know how many, but quite a few uh, artifacts in my personal collections that came out of there in the 1950s and 60s. Over at Etowah, there they do have a little museum, and they have um, some of these statues that they pulled out of the ground there. They have one of them. Uh, they took the rest of them over to uh, Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. Are but, these like effigies or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very ornate. I think you could, if you do a Google search for them, I think you could probably find them. But they're they're fascinating. Um, probably one of the. That's it's a powerful place to go to. Just Certainly. stand up on top of one and just realize that people have been here for centuries and centuries. You well, know. Adam, you know, adding to that, uh, the Etowah Mounds are, you said, close to Atlanta. Where are they again? In uh, what part of Georgia? Uh, they are close to Cartersville, Carter, Georgia. Gotcha. Georgia. So it's it's almost almost about a halfway point between Chattanooga and Atlanta. I got you. Yeah, you know, as the guys know, I was recently at the Oak Mulgee site, which is down there. I mean, I would say that it may be, I mean, it's a national monument, but the actual property that the monument encompasses takes up maybe uh, as much as a tenth, maybe even an eighth of of the general immediate Macon, Georgia metro. It's very large. And those mounds, I mean, we, we had spent so much time at various mound sites, Serpent Mound, Mound City. Uh, we, we visited actually what is designated as one of the, if not the largest actual Adena mound anywhere in the United States, which is the Grave Creek Mound. That was a fascinating place too that we've been to among the sites that Seven Ages has visited. But when I went to Oak Mulgee last weekend with Dakota Waddell, um, we we uh, and Dakota, of course, is a longtime friend of mine. He also is a he has a degree in history, but uh, he works as a musician like I do from time to time. He works a lot more as a musician than I do. I kind of 
hung my hat up on that to pursue this kind of thing more uh, uh, steadily. Oak Mulgee, those are some of the largest mounds I've ever seen. And the Temple Mound, the Great Temple Mound, is 55 feet tall. Again, uh, the the square footage at the base might be as much as 18,000 feet in terms of the area it covers. It's very large, built up onto a swamp. And there is, again, a, a habitation that goes all the way back to the Paleo-Indian period. It's just hard to tell whether or not there were Paleo-Indian hunters, i.e. Clovis, because they did find one large fluted projectile there in the middle 1930s. It's hard to tell whether there was a consistent habitation site there during that Paleo-Indian period, or they just happened to find evidence of lithics where they had been hunting, moving through that area. But we definitely know that by the time that the uh, the Mississippian culture, of course, comes into play that they were there, they were they were settled there, and the mounds were constructed during that period. Absolutely awe-inspiring. And like you talk about the Etowah Mounds, to climb to the top of one of those those mounds, to stand there, to look out over the earth, the world, and to see the same view that people hundreds and perhaps thousands of years ago, in some cases when you go to some of these places, to see the world from their perspective and to know the world as they knew it, even for just a moment. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. There's nothing like that feeling, nothing like that sense of going to those places, being there. And I try every time to to maintain a certain mindfulness, you know, to feel the essence of what it was when those people constructed those sites and what it was like for them to be there, what it was like for them to live there. Another site I got to say that the Seven Ages team and I, uh, really, I think we all took this one in like that. And it, it, it may not immediately appear to be as impressive a site as some that we've discussed here, but... Flint Ridge, okay, Flint Ridge is an ancient lithic quarry, one of two that Jason and I visited together, but we've all three been to another one also called uh, the Morrow Mountain uh, State Park. When you go to these quarries where the ancient people in America were extracting stone from the earth, and this is what they used to create the lithics, and we collect these tools, we find them in plowed fields these days or in the bottoms of stream beds, but when we take them and we hold them and we turn them in our hands, some people look at those and they go, oh, look at that neat arrowhead. You know, I know that I speak for all three of us, Jason and James and I. We don't hold one of those in our hand without thinking, my God, this was formed out of stone, raw earthen material thousands of years ago by somebody. And this person made this because it was not just a way of life, but this this lithic, this stone tool was the key to their survival. They lived and they died by that stone. And that, again, when, when you go out there and you experience that for yourself— Flint Ridge is one of these sites where chert was extracted directly from the ground. And you go there and there's a beautiful little path. It's a nice little trail, a nature trail. And people are out there walking their dogs and doing stuff like that. And the three of us are down on our hands and knees, literally, moving our hands through the dirt, marveling. You're not allowed to take any of it away from there. You know, it's actually a federal offense, I believe. And so we're, mm. we're looking, you know, it's kind of a look. You can, you can touch it, but you're just not supposed to take the stone away. But but, you know, to, to be there and to be able to see all this beautiful, multicolored, rainbow-colored flint and to know – you see the huge heaps of earth where they had dug holes to extract the chert from the ground over periods of thousands of years. God almighty, it's just – it will blow your mind when you go there and you take in and you think, my God, this is a place that for thousands of years people came here because their lives literally depended on it. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 amazing to think about it to get that context of your place in history, you know. Um, well, thank you guys so much. I mean, this has been very fascinating. I've I've really enjoyed this. Rob, 
Luke, was there anything that you guys wanted to ask about? No, I I just wanted to commend you guys on the uh, the amount of uh, content you guys have put up over the past like you know four to five weeks. You guys have honestly yeah. put like a lot of work into this, and I love what you're doing. And it makes it the fact that we haven't been able to talk to Micah in months. <laughs> like it, it, <laughs> we totally get it now, and and it's it's worthwhile. So thanks thanks for doing what you're doing. Hey, well, it's it's our pleasure, but we got to make up for lost time, and I do need to come see you guys. I owe you you some time, honestly, because it's true friends of mine. Uh, and uh, and again, I hope you guys will get to meet. Uh, you know, you, Adam, you got to meet Jason. We we went yep. and saw Iron Maiden together. It was great. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we missed Ghost, but we saw Iron Maiden. <laughs> I don't uh, remind me. Mind. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Ghost. How did that even happen? We okay. Th- so there's a make good that's got to be done right there. But but I want you guys to meet James Waldo too. Again, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's there's absolutely distinctly a brotherhood and a familial feeling when we're out together. And I hope maybe. Uh, that seven ages we can we can make our way over there toward Nashville, Chattanooga, and spend some time with you guys. You take us out, and keep in mind that the the different periods in Native American uh, history in America those are not the entire focus of Seven Ages. If you head over to sevenages.org, you'll see that I mean we've got articles that Jason has written about great white sharks and his paleontological interests and in things. Je- you know James has done some great articles. Our most viewed article right now has to do with the calendar of deep time that James wrote about geology. I loved that article too. I love all of the articles that the guys are writing. And again, as de facto editor of the website, I get to read all of them. So I'm well aware of what my my buddies are writing. And there's some really great content over there. We do some news and some features and things about some current events stuff too. But we're trying not to just do what a lot of websites do and just feature the same stories that everybody else is rewriting and, and, and doing. You know, there's a lot of original content that goes much deeper uh, you know, for instance, there's an article I wrote about World War II that involves uh, Ian Fleming and his work under as assistant to the director of Maxwell Knight, who at the time was head of MI5. And they're trying to tap Aleister Crowley to help them uh, in uh, the bid against the Nazi Germany. So, I mean, See, somehow in a show that we do about archaeology, Crowley is going to come up like he just pops his ugly head in there all the every time, episode, Rob. Every single episode. <laughs> well, Again, all areas of history is what I'm saying. <laughs> Seven ages, It's if you look at the actual website, it says history, archaeology, science, culture. We want to talk with Anthony Bourdain one of these days. So I know that there's so much rich culture and history that, that uh, you know, your state and, and the locality right around you guys over there in Nashville offers. We're looking forward to coming and seeing you too. Jace, where are you located at? Oh, I'm in uh, Savannah, Georgia. Okay. All right. So we're all we're all fairly right now. About maybe about three miles straight line distance to the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, so we're all fairly close to each other. I mean, regionally, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah sure. Okay, well, you guys are going to have to come out here to Tennessee. We would yeah. love to. Yep. Oh, I love it out there. I, I'm actually from west of the Mississippi, over in uh, over in the Little Rock area. Okay, and I'm a transplant down here to Savannah, but uh, we travel back that way. You know three or four times a year uh, through that area. Oh, and if you guys don't mind, by the way, uh, we do have one kind of pertinent announcement to make, depending on when the uh, podcast airs. Uh, Seven Ages is going to be at a lithic artifact show in Greenville, North Carolina. And that's going to be coming up this weekend. So for those who may hear this in time, that's going to be this Saturday February the 10th, a trade show in Greenville, North Carolina. Jason, the official name of that trade show is what again? 
Uh, it's actually just called the Greenville Artifact Show. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's going to be at the Holiday Inn um, Resort Center or Conference Center there in Greenville, North Carolina, not South Carolina. And that's going to be on February 10th. And we should be there till about three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, just, you know, meet with people and taking, doing some interviews and just kind of hanging out for the day. Um, so yeah, if you happen to be in the Greenville, North Carolina area, feel free to stop by and say hi. And we will have a table there with our logo, with some some audio visuals, some cards, and some pamphlets and things like that. And of course, we're always available to talk. We're going to be hoping to do some interviews with people there on site. And keep in mind, if you're, if you're out there listening, especially if you're somewhere in the Southeast, and you know of an artifact trade show coming up that you think would be of interest to Seven Ages, you can email us. If you head over to the website, sevenages.org, you'll find the ways to contact us. But I mean, our, our emails are very simple. Micah at sevenages.org, Jason at sevenages.org, James at sevenages.org. Any of those emails will reach us. But yeah, let us know where you are, what's of interest to you, what you might think that we'd like to come see, or if you have a story or a site or, or an area of history that you want to talk about and share with us. And, and, and of course, if there's a show, a trade show or something like that, that you think would be good for us to come and visit, uh, we, we'll look into that too. We love to get out there. We're going to be doing it this weekend and we're not just going to be going to a trade show. We're going to be doing some field work and stuff too. When we do it, we usually go for several days at a time and, and keep ourselves busy. So yeah, we, we'd love to hear from you guys. Excellent. And I also wanted to say the the website's fairly nicely uh, formatted. It's real easy to view. It's great on mobile devices. Like it's laid out real real convenient. And there's a lot of great content there. So just want to commend you guys on that as well. Thank you, brother Rob. Thank you, man. Yeah, man, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for having us on. It's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. Stay on the line for us, gentlemen, and uh, we will be right back to close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> Yeah, man. Uh, I think I want to go be a Mississippian Indian and carve some uh, carve some mounds, some some lewd artifacts and, <laughs> and mounds. Yeah, yeah, I like mounds. Yeah, apparently you've been drawing a picture over here. What, what are your What are your pieces of art? Uh, yeah, it's it's a little Mississippian dude um, banging <laughs> banging a. Uh, like a tribe tribal chick, and there's a like skin covered hut in the background. We need to we need to sell those. We need to sell your artwork, man. <laughs> no, I, like, like I said, I'm going to turn them into wallpapers. They're going to go on the Patreon account. If y'all want them, you can put them on your computer. Would you like some of Luke's pornographic wallpapers? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I, I don't think this is like appropriate for the. It doesn't matter. Even if you don't, <laughs> even, even if you don't want to use them as wallpapers, if you just want to see them, they'll be there. Maybe they're waiting for you. Maybe you could just draw some little, or, or uh, digitally put some little sensor bars yeah, on the, yeah, 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 yeah. I can do that. <laughs> As if no one will really know what's going on or anything like that. Yeah. So what did you guys think of that? Oh, that was great, man. I, I really like what they're doing. I like that Mike has put together a team of people that are, mm-hmm. you know, licensed, like, good at what they do, very knowledgeable at what they do, and they're going around to sites, and they're actually, like, digging really deep into this stuff 
Yeah. Instead of speculating, they're actually going out and doing. Yeah, they've obviously, I mean, we know that, like, Mike had disappeared from us months ago, so we know that they've been, like, right. working super hard on, on this stuff, and, you know, they're, they're not just out there, they're not just on, on the internet, like, grabbing stuff and regurgitating stuff. They're, they're coming up with good content, you know, good, like, re- research, like, original, validatable stuff, you know, and... It's definitely worth lo- looking at the the website. Like alone, it's only been up for like a month or something mm-hmm. like that, and it's got tons of blog posts. It got all, all these audio podcasts. It's it's just great. Yeah, Mike has added yet another podcast to his repertoire, which right. is <laughs> uh, other than Grayland Report and Middle Theory, which are both I highly recommend. But this one I highly recommend as well because um, it's got a good feel to it, and I think that they're you know they they've. Definitely, you know, talking about the archaeological stuff, but also some like weird historical mysteries. They were talking about uh, a little section about Boston Corbett, who was the guy who assassinated John Wilkes Booth. Yeah, and there's some, some random interesting. social, like, um, pop culture stuff too. Sure, too, yeah, as well. But there's there's a lot of really deep. Um, the, the geologic geological stuff is really fascinating, and they did um, a whole thing about Charles Manson. Yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> which I listened to that uh, yesterday, which was really interesting. So, yeah, I'm looking to, to I'm looking forward to hearing more from those guys. So, Absolutely. this is it. Last of the 100s. Wow, so we got like a big one coming up next. Apparently we do. Uh, what are we going to do? Um, I think we have some people coming into the studio. Really? Or they may have already been here. Wow. I don't know. You never know with the uh, effects of time travel Sweet. what can happen. I hope I don't lose that file. Yeah, yeah, that would not be good. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to back that up. Get to back it up, back it up. <laughs> so um, tell everybody about Patreon. Um, I don't know if Luke's going to sing this time. but uh, No, do, uh, Luke has a broken molar and refuses oh, yeah. to go to the dentist. He's, so. he's falling apart. You need to do it just like the ancients did it, man. Just take a rock and just smash it on out of there. I mean, I, I did take a rock at the lake and just like file my tooth down when it was stabbing yeah. into my cheek one yeah. time. So, yeah, well, well, there you go, That's folks. a good way to do it. You know? <laughs> I am my own dentist. If you want to help promote our <laughs> podcast and help Luke get dental care, um, <laughs> you can do so at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. There's several tiers. We have a lot of bonus episodes. We post them up monthly when we can, mostly monthly. Uh, there's wallpapers. We've got T-shirts. There's various tiers you can subscribe to. If you don't want to uh, do a subscription, if you don't want something monthly coming out of your account, we totally understand. You can go to our website and do a one-time contribution at conspiranormal.com. And if money is a little tight and you still want to support us, you just a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen is huge for us. We absolutely love those. Uh, we we try to read the new positive ones whenever we can. They're all positive lately, and we love you guys for that. So, those are different ways you can contribute. And again, we love you all. Yes, absolutely. And apparently, I'm seeing something about um, Elon Musk launched a car into orbit. Really, or something? I love that your, guy. Your hero. He is my hero. <laughs> He's going to replace us all with robots. That's but fine. he'll still be your your hero. The robots will do a better job. Yeah, yeah. maybe so. so. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. And we're going to be back for our episode 200 extravaganza on Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.